Welcome to episode number 108 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and Paper Making Masterclasses here in the studio, and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. You can also find the show notes for this episode at that link. Click on Podcast in the menu and look for episode number 108. Again, that's HelenHebertStudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Peter Thomas, a book artist and a hand papermaker with a special interest in production papermaking. He has been making fine press and artist books in collaboration with his wife, Donna Thomas, since 1977. All of the books they make use their own handmade paper, and some of their books relating to papermaking include Beater Time Tests from 1987, a collection of paper samples from hand paper mills in the United States of America, 1993, Paper from Plants, 1997, The History of Papermaking in the Philippines, 2005, Tuck and Hay Mill, People and Paper, 2016, and Paper Samples, 2022. We'll talk about several of these in the episode, and I'll link to these books in the show notes. Thomas has written books and articles about papermaking and the book arts, produced a documentary educational video titled The Ergonomics of Hand Papermaking, and has been active in the leadership of IATMA, the International Association of Hand Papermakers and Paper Artists, and the Friends of Dart Hunter. The name of this organization is currently North American Hand Papermakers. Enjoy our conversation. Well, Peter Thomas, welcome to Paper Talk. Tell me where you're uh, chiming in from. I'm living, uh, talking from my home in Santa Cruz, California. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm really looking forward to diving into your career with paper. So tell me how you, how you got started. Well, um, so I was looking over my life um, in preparation for this. So I realized that probably it all started with these reoccurring dreams I had as a little kid, kind of nightmares. One of them was about sinking in a boat, like a pirate boat, and I was sinking. But the other was I was in this giant library where there was these just giant books. They were just huge. They were like as large as me. And they had these colorful spines. I think they were like the Wizard of Oz books. And I always had this affinity to books. And um, in high school, I liked um, reading fairy tales and starting to write fairy tales. And a neighbor, one of my classmates' father or grandfather was Frank Baum. And so I read all of those Wizard of Oz books. Oh, and that yeah. doesn't have anything to do with paper making, really. But I, I love books and love this concept of fantasy. My parents took me to the Renaissance Fair uh, mm-hmm. down in L.A. And it was just like a magical thing to see everybody recreating the past. And, and just even if it was imaginary, it was just fascinating to me. I wanted to be part of that. Then when I was in college, I went away to college. I went to UC Santa Cruz with no general plan. I was a child of the whatever I am. I was born in the 50s. And so I um, had a lot of opportunities to do whatever I wanted and not a lot of guidance. And so just went to Santa Cruz because it seemed a beautiful place and took random classes. Wait, got- where did you grow up? 
Oh, I grew up in Pasadena, near Pasadena, a town called Lockheata. So I'm from California. So I didn't go that far away. Right. And um, one of the guys in my hall, his name was Jeff Glucks, and he was part of a a troupe uh, called Cock and Feathers that that entertained at the Renaissance fairs. And and so his and the Renaissance fair ran during the beginning of our first school year. And I lived in the dorms. He was on my hall, and a lot of Renaissance fair people came and stayed in our dorms because they really didn't have any place to stay. Mm-hmm. And I thought, geez, you know, if they're actors, I could be an actor too. I know this doesn't have much to do with paper making, but I'll get there. Don't worry. And then, then, um, so I, I volunteered to be an actor at the Renaissance fair, but pretty soon I wanted to have a booth, um, because I love building things. I'm in uh, high school. I built a tree house. I was always building forts. I had a motorized tricycle and a motorized three wheel Harley Davidson and a th- three wheel mail truck too. I just love mechanical things. And so this idea of building a fort was really good. But they said, well, if you have to have a, have a booth you have to have something to do in it Mm -hmm. and then because it was an actor they said well you could if you could teach people something you'd be in it so i thought oh great i was writing fairy tales i thought i'll just uh, print up a fairy tale and have people teach people how to bind it in a book and they and i so i went to the library and found this book on book binding pauline johnson's creative book binding and oh yeah um and made a book and they looked and they said yep that's a book you're in and so i got to build my booth but i had to figure out how to bind books and so i went back to the library to find that book again and i couldn't find it but in the 600 sections where all the cr- things about crafts were there right was the book in front of me paper making through 17th centuries by dart hunter or whatever whatever that book was 15th centuries and looked at it and first paper was made in england 1492 reign of queen england queen elizabeth and so i thought oh this is perfect i'll just make paper too so that's how i got started um just completely unattached to anything to do with anything real all about imaginary creating imaginary world right but i love that history and you're making me remember that when i was about 13 my parents took me to williamsburg in virginia you know the recreation of the old and and maybe that was somehow inspirational and then we did have a renaissance fair in texas where i grew up too yeah that's a great i love that story so i um, did everything. I mean, I looked at the pictures in Dart Hunter's book. It, his descriptions of how to make paper are not anything that anybody could ever use to make paper, really, from that book. So, kind of just figured out a way to do. It. I stretched a nylon stocking over a wooden frame and dipped it into mushed-up newsprint and dipped it through. But a miracle, a paper appeared, and when I, I could peel it off of the nylon stocking, I had paper, and everybody's just amazed. And so. I mean, it's a long story because it's a lot of years. That was in 1975, something like right, that. Right, and, So, And you had to really just find your way because there wasn't good instructional information yeah, like there well, is today. Yeah. Exactly. Because it was hard to find information. There was mm-hmm. no internet. So how did you right. even find other people making paper? Well, um, my best friend there at the fair, his mom taught at an art center in in. Uh, in LA somewhere and and they actually somehow connected because they're in art school with twin rocker and he said hey somebody's demonstrating paper making I think this is my second year of doing it and so we went down and I'd been like using an egg beater or pounding stuff with wood like Dart Hunter said they did and mm-hmm. they had then Howie I didn't know it was Howie then but he had an electric drill with a paint stirring attachment to blend her up paper and it's like oh my god <laughs> great that was yeah so 
all these tricks that we learn from each other just can revolutionize our processes and it is still happening continually now. So yeah. I upgraded to blending up um, newsprint and I used raw newsprint um, unprinted because it was hard to get rid of the ink. And mm -hmm. then I don't know, you know, the chronology gets mixed up, but um, little unbeknownst to me, Garner Tullis was really was making paper with people here in Santa Cruz at his Institute of Experimental Printmaking. Okay. And uh, uh, Don and I, I met Donna about that same year, and we started our business together in 1977. Hey, so Donna's your wife. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when we started working, like, sort of full-time-ish together, except we were both students. And she was a student in, at Sonoma State, and I was a student at UC Santa Cruz. So we were not living together, but we were um, making the books and doing things together. But, but the point I want to go back to is, at the Renaissance Fair, besides just teaching how to make paper, I did actually end up teaching people how to bind books too, um, mm -hmm. the method that I'd invented. And um, the Renaissance Fair had about ten to twenty thousand people come through a day, and it was on it was eight weekends in a row. So a lot of people came through, and there was book binders that came through and said, "Hey, you know, I they they don't really do it like that. This, you know, you might want to try this and or something." Oh, I went to Williamsburg and saw blah blah blah, and mm -hmm. each of those like I could take because of being mechanical just yeah. like oh yeah this makes sense this is logical like this is what's going to make it work better um but it didn't really like things like finding out about materials like cotton liners that was a little trickier and I think um it was through John Babcock who's who I'm um was I was um I made some blank books and and was selling them at a local craft fair Christmas in 1977 or something. And John Babcock walked by and said, oh, we're over making paper there. And we use this thing called liners or whatever. And so it's just as casual as that is how do you find out about materials, right. how random we made that, that this would be going on in Santa Cruz where I live. So my whole career as a paper maker has been kind of guided by the same um, faith that, that drove Mr. Magoo in those cartoons. You know, you just, step off a ledge and you end up in a truck that's full of feathers and that takes you somewhere where you need to be next so it, but it but it did all require a lot of perseverance on my part because there was very little information at the time so you were doing the renaissance fair did you do that for several years and then you were doing other sort of craft fairs and we, building up your expertise well it's it's much less than that. So as a student, I graduated in the 78 and I started doing the fairs in 75. And so I take a okay. quarter off school each year and I was basically selling blank books and teaching people how to make paper. The paper making was, was entertaining, but it didn't make any money and mm -hmm. the books made money. And so Don and I gained our sort of skills to become book artists a lot by selling blank books. We make a hundred to 150 books for each weekend. And we did a total of 24 weekends a year. Okay. So we were making a lot of books. And so we got, that's how, uh, I think that's what led to the fact that we were able to invent structures because we kn knew how the materials work because we've made hundreds of things and our hands knew how things worked. And, and so it became intuitive rather than a struggle to think what to do next. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, but concurrently with that, at school, I went to uh, the library to try to borrow their paper cutter to cut cut use the board here to cut cardboard to make uh -huh. some books and the librarian said geez you're you know you're making paper you're binding books you haven't learned to print there's this man william everson of um, 
um, he prints on a press like Ben Franklin used and, and students work with him like apprentices and they just learn, they just help him print his books in the library and you can get that as a class. Oh. So, so that's how I got introduced to fine press printing and Everson is on the West coast. And even at that time throughout was recognized as one of America's finest fine press printers. Um, and so I was very lucky in that way to get introduced to printing. Uh, mm -hmm. Concurrently, I took there was an adult ed class at the high school in printing, and I took a shop class, printing shop class. So if I hadn't met Everson, who knows, I could have just owned a print shop. But instead, I got introduced to the idea of making books. And at that time, um, in my classes at, at college, which were aesthetic, I was I majored in aesthetic studies. So thinking about what do artists think about and and uh, really, I was forced to defend the idea of craft as art, is mm -hmm. craft art, which was a big discussion back then. It's not so much, I don't think, a discussion anymore. But we thought really, I, Don and I, we thought of ourselves as craftspeople. We're trying to make the most beautiful thing our hands can possibly produce. And are influenced by Ruskin's thoughts and, and William Morris's Kelmscott Press and that whole English revival of the craftsman trying to make beauty rather than just being a cog in a machine. Um, we tried to make, we thought of ourselves as these craftspeople making beautiful books. And it was the same sort of way that Everson thought about himself. He, at that point, there wasn't really the word book artist. They were fine mm -hmm. printers trying to make a book that was the most beautiful rendition of the text you could possibly make. And tell so me, I, I want you to tell me a little bit about what Donna studied. And I know she does a lot of illustration in your books, but... Uh, did All she? right. Donna was um, at that point, um, she took a lot of she was a very um, in high school. She did had a lot of crafts classes, jewelry, weaving, natural dyeing. And mm -hmm. um, when she went to college, she um, was in a another kind of alternative program and she took painting classes and other all sorts of general education classes. Mm -hmm. But painting was really and weaving and so she she spent a lot of time during college doing natural dyeing and weaving okay. and um it's hard for me to speak for her but yeah. all her part of the collaboration has, has always been um she's very very efficient and quick uh -huh. and so like when it comes when we we'd have book finding races and i'd always be coming in like third and like i when we made our books i would I'd forward them, she'd case them in and I'd press them and she could do like twice as much as I could. I'd just be kind of keeping up, which so and she now does all of her production binding and she provides all of the illustration for the work that we do. And are and, you saying she's you would come in third because she came in first and second or was yes, there another person? Really fast. She, can okay. get, she got both first and second. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> cool. Um, I'll see if we don't address how our collaboration works a little later in the yeah, talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think I should talk a little more about the paper making. So, yes. Um, and I don't know what's going to be interesting to your listening audience. Mm -hmm. So I needed a Hollander beater. I knew that. And mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to find one anywhere. And so I figured I got to build it. So I, I pretended I was building the role as an art project. And I guess I got the idea because I went to a paper making conference, um, the one in Santa Barbara in the, 1982, I think it was, and okay. met Jim Arnell. And Jim Arnell, who helped Lee McDonald get going and 
in building his beaters had built his own beater. He worked for Beechcraft on some of the machinists there and helped him do things. But he was a very mechanical person. He said, Peter, it's easy. Just do it. And so naively, I just said, okay, I'll just do it. So I built the roll and then built a box and, and had a beater that worked, but it didn't work very good. Uh-huh. Let's um and so then I went we went to England because we were interested in England. I went to Wookie Hall, saw paper makers work work in Wookie Hall and realized that I was really not I didn't know how paper was made. I mean, I was just imagining it all and seeing it be made. I, I said, Oh my God, look what they do, how mm-hmm. their how their motions are, they coot what they cooch, how much and the thing that amazed me the most was when they pulled the piece after they pressed the paper and they pulled it off the felt, they just lifted it up and, and kind of threw it through the air like a lettuce leaf. It was so solid. And, and at the time, I'd been struggling with this like fancy system. How do I get the paper off the felt? You know, like with a, you like lift it up, get a chopstick underneath it, lift it off and gently carry it to some line. But their paper was like solid when it came out of the press. And so I realized I needed a bigger press. I needed to know what to do with the beater. They talked about, how the first the pulp was broken and then it was beaten and all these things I didn't have any clue about how I there's obviously things I need to find more about but how am I going to find them out and the information wasn't there right and I want to talk a little bit about that um learning by seeing because there's nothing like that and um like how long were you able to spend with a paper maker because you must have had millions of questions well Um, and I couldn't even ask because it was it it was at Wookie Hole, so it's it belongs to Madame Tussauds, and it's a tour. Right. I, okay. I I skipped the whole rest of the tour and just stood there as uh-huh. a tour group went through, another tour group went through. I you know, and I maybe spent just half hour watching, but I couldn't ask any questions, but because there wasn't anybody to ask. You know, these guys mm-hmm. are, and I did later meet them. You you know that part of the story, and they couldn't really answer questions. They were trained as apprentices, and when apprentices learn, they don't want anybody else to learn. I mean, right. the doesn't want to teach them because they'll get displaced by them, and so they have to learn by just watching. So you're, it's what you said is really true that all those early paper makers learn by watching the other person work and then developing their own system out of it. Right. Right. Okay. So then. So so in terms of my chronology as a paper maker, um. I think I made some huge leaps when, um, so I was printing with Everson and that's a very key part of the whole, whole life as book artists, because I was introduced to the aesthetic of what is, what is Everson's aesthetic of what was a fine press book, which influenced all of our early work through mm-hmm. um, up through the early nineties, when we started thinking about making books as artwork instead, with this idea of, of importance of, of, spacing of type on a page placement of type on a page of the the golden rectangle and, and this whole very classical aesthetic which which drove our work so in okay so was working with eberson there oh i've lost my train of thought you're gonna have to get me back on track here helen well let's uh so how long have you oh, been oh go right. ahead i got it now moving ahead so how do we move ahead so yeah um we were printing this giant folio book of, of Robinson Jeffers poems on hail handmade paper. So I got exposed to all these, you know, like we had thousands of sheets of hail handmade paper. So I could, I could see like, this is what I'm aiming for. And we had a rip about a three inch strip off the top to make this horizontal format book. And they had all these little three inch by 20 inch strips of paper, 24 inch strips of paper oh. were being tossed out. And I was like, this is like, you can't toss out gold. This right. stuff. So I grabbed it 
And then I printed a little book on it. And um, when I was, there was a bookseller in LA that was interested in papermaking, Mir Doss, and, and I'd known about him because I'd asked, I'd gone to ask him some questions through the Renaissance Fair. Somebody said, oh, you got to go to Dawson's bookshop. This is somebody who's interested in papermaking. And, but I was pretty naive. I was pretty young and I didn't really know to dig in and ask questions as much as some smarter person was. Mostly I was just powering on ahead myself like Mr. Magoo would have done, hoping I'd make some progress where I could have really maybe searched out somebody to ask questions to. But anyway, I didn't. But I, I made this miniature, this book, three inch book, and I took it to Dawson's bookshop and Muir looked and he says, that's cute. You, you should show it to my brother. He likes stuff like that. So I took it to Glenn Dawson. He whipped a ruler out of his pocket and said, oh, three and a quarter inches, shoot. You know, if that was a quarter inch shorter, I would have bought 30, but oh. I don't want any. I said, what? He says, well, there's people that like miniature books and they only want, want them under three inches. So I made this classically proportioned book with lots of really wide margins. So I trimmed off like three eighths of an inch, cutting, having to cut the decals all off, but made it down to the, the size that he wanted and sold him 30 books. And that's, you asked, how did I get started making miniature books? Yeah. That's very practical, something to sell. So these because, were the offcuts from the Everson projects and yeah. Everson was getting the paper from Hale Mill. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. So the first book, Yotan's Vision. And and then the, that that was in 80, 1980 or so. And in 82, Glenn called and said, Peter, I think this would be good for your career. They're starting, they're having the first gathering of miniature book publishers and miniature book collectors in Ohio. And so, okay. so we went to Ohio to, for this first thing. Now you'll love the, the serendipity here mm -hmm. um, that it was put on by a lady named Miriam Irwin and, and, I, as I understood it, there was this woman named Peg Ryan who was working as her personal secretary at the time. Yeah. So I met Peg and Michael Dorsa at the right. book conference. And I was having real problems with my mold I'd made. I made this paper making mold with a laid surface and I got the laid surface from the Plank Dandy Roll Company. And my paper was just picking it. When I held it to the light, it didn't look like a beautiful sheet. It had all these little poke polka dots in it and I couldn't figure out whether it was my beater that I made that I didn't know how to run or what was it and Michael and I sat around talking about it staring at it talking about it staring about it and all of a sudden I think it was he I'll credit him he said wait look at your screens running the wrong way and the fibers are not rolling across they're they're getting stuck in the chain lines rather than rolling over the laid lines when you dip so if you can imagine I put the the screen on so the laid lines were running um the way you dip and so the, uh, it the problem and so and it's because plank had pre-cut the piece of thing and sent it to the size i specified so so that was on so serendipity things like that are what actually move things along yeah i love that and listeners peg ryan or margaret ryan is a recent episode on paper talk you can listen to her whole story but also are those little pick marks you're talking about like there are they watermarks well because yeah i've had I, these little dots when i put a buttercut watermark on my mold sometimes and i can't figure out what it is what was happening was the fibers as i dipped were getting stuck in the little crevices because the crevices were were aimed yeah. in, a, in a v shape the way that the fiber would get stuck in them so if you look if you're dipping so then using a decal box should eliminate those because then you don't have any dip motion. Right. Yeah. And I remember actually referring back to Dard Hunter, that 
I don't know if it was that book or just, I've read his just more trade publication. Um, and he wrote about putting something underneath the screen to create a watermark, which I found fascinating because we're usually putting something on top. So there's something related in there. And I love that we stumbled across this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was, and I already said serendipity because um, Margaret Ryan Peg, you, you interviewed only two interviews ago. So yeah. we were really close. And, yeah. and she was, they were slightly ahead of me. It was Michael Dorsa that then told, well, the Cheney Pulp and Paper Company is in Ohio. And he right. he knew that he'd like taken a truckload of it to Twin Rocker for them. So he knew about that source. So that I found out about Cheney Half stuff. Okay. Which, which nobody was telling anybody about. And so I um, <laughs> uh, was able to order um a half a ton of the stuff which lasted me for probably 20 years i mean but you had to buy you had to buy two bales wet bales that would each weighed 500 pounds i mean you had to buy or two two 250 pound bales you had to buy half a ton a thousand pounds it was just crazy right and, and I, now now we have paper making suppliers who yeah, still yeah. purchase from cheney but they're distributing it in smaller quantities yeah, yeah. Don't buy that huge amount right so then so i guess the point of which I don't think I need to dwell too much more on this, except for to say that what really advanced things was think was then meeting people who were making paper. And I went to a Dart Hunter meeting because I learned from them about Dart Hunter meetings. And before that, I couldn't really afford to go, but I figured this is important. I got to afford to go. And, and this is the Friends of Dart Hunter is now called the North American Hand Paper Maker. You. So it's yeah. still around. Yeah. And the, at this point, it was called the Friends of the Dart Hunter Paper Museum because it was held in Appleton and, and created to support the preservation of dart hunters paper making collection right but um so then i was able to talk to people ask questions share information and my um paper making skills improved very quickly at that point so that would be i think i read the first time i went was in 1983 or 85 somewhere in there okay so so then i started to be able to make much better paper in 19 81 i bought a three by three foot industrial hydraulic press from a used hydraulic press shop in la because there was like all this used equipment stuff and and that that provides enough pressure and i was saying that pressure is the whole trick to making paper and you just can't make good production paper without a big press and yeah. i think i forgot to mention something helen you know for your audience out there mm -hmm. your audience i'm a production paper maker. I'm interested in making paper to print my own books on. And all of the books that Donna and I have made, which you can see them all if you get Kathy, uh, the Legacy Press's bibliography of our work, you'll see that we've made 180 edition books so far so about that in our careers. And the editions run from 200 edition copies to 30 copies. And we made over, Donna's made over 300 one-of-a-kind books we made all sorts of other ones but they've all been made with my own handmade paper right. and so that's a lot of sheets of paper but it's not that much paper compared to somebody who's making paper every day all day and so i was very interested in how did those people work to make paper every day mm. what was it and that led to a very interesting part of um our story that you 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 wanted to have me mention which culminated in a book that's called Tuckaday mills people and paper and for those of you in the audience you can just look at our website google search for peter and donna thomas and you'll find our website and then there's links to all these things on there but 
that man who I saw making paper at Wookie Hole, when I saw him making paper, I said, God, wouldn't I love to be an apprentice with him and work with him? Mm-hmm. And at a paper making uh, Dart Hunter meeting in, in Chillicothe, Ohio, there was this British woman there named Julian Spires. And I was talking with her and I said how I, and she says, oh, that man, he retired. He's my neighbor. <laughs> and I was like, my God. Yeah, he helped, he helped me give a paper making demonstration at our local tea party. And I was like, oh, my God. And he'd actually worked, did the paper mill he'd originally worked in was called the Tuckenhay Mill, which is in Devon, right near where Jillian lived in, in Ugborough. Okay. And so I said, oh, my God, I'd love to meet him. She says, well, just come visit. So, like, you know, I booked a trip as soon as I could. Well, as soon as I could coincided with the International Paper Historians meeting in Durham. And uh-huh. so I went with Ray Tomasa to that meeting. And then Jillian took us down to um, to her home to to meet with Cyril Finn. And this was like a kind of a dream come true. And she had this vat and this giant mold and, and their vat was, was, but everything was wrong for Cyril because he was used to working in a, in a vat with circulating pulp and he was used right. and so the, the pulp would throw itself out of the middle. So, and he just couldn't tell us how to make paper. You know, he couldn't answer our questions. It was so frustrating. Uh, we, we, I was, we were there with a woman, Carol Hurd, who was one of the active paper makers, um, worked with Frank Gallo and, and Ray Tomaso, and I and Jillian. And then we were just like quizzing this guy, you know, like, you know, especially because um, the, what the, the shake of a paper maker was a very mysterious thing at the time. And people always talked about how important it was. Um, and what we thought the shake was and what most people did was it meant you sort of shimmy your piece of paper back and forth to level the fibers down. So you dip in and mostly we would dip down and then lift straight out and then mm-hmm. shake. And um, but that wasn't the shake. But for some reason, there wasn't anybody who was really I don't, I don't think anybody else just had been come curious about that. You, the ways that we learned to make our own paper work well enough. And so we don't worry right. about it. Mm-hmm. But I was intrigued because I'd been working at the Renaissance Fair. And and in the Renaissance Fair, I did this thing called Workshop in the Woods, where, where I would teach high school, school kids would come through and I teach them about being an apprentice paper maker. So I was just like, it means they have to sweep the floor for a year before they get to do anything, right? And Cyril said that was actually the case, that he just uh-huh. sort of wept the floor for a year, kind of watching um, until he got uh-huh. a chip or something. So anyway, it was a treat for me to be able to see this man work. And, and I was really wanting to know how did, how did he work? What did you, but he couldn't articulate it. Uh-huh. And the visit was over and we didn't really, you know, he just, we couldn't figure out what were the motions that he went through. So made a plan to come back again um, in 1990 with, um, and this time we're going to video camera and this time take him to Wookiee Hole. So right. we could actually work with him in his vat mill to yeah. work. And, and so um, that, that was in conjunction with going um, to an IATMA meeting. And I just stress this over and over again, that, that going to these meetings, talking to these other paper makers is the way that one mm-hmm. advances their partic- your skills in your craft. You can beat your head against the wall on your own and get a long ways. But geez, you can jump so fast and so far when you get somebody to tell you the answer to the, the uh, thing you've been wondering about. So we we went back with the video cam and filmed him and really still couldn't figure it out. And he had this other fellow that was working there that was his apprentice that was working there. And he really didn't think that guy made paper right. 
Uh-huh. And this other guy that obviously didn't make paper right, he was saying, oh, he's got it down perfect. What is it? This guy dipped in and lifts straight out. What is it that he's got perfect? And then we went to Hale Mill and interviewed Norman Peters, the 92-year-old papermaker that had worked for Bartram Green all the time. And, 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 and he said, oh, I do my paper making to a waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three, <laughs> one, two, three. And, and, and then we met the youngest papermaker. Um, that was Ron Eden, the last papermaker that was an apprentice at, um, at Takane. And, and Ron finally said, something that made sense. He says, oh, it's the water wave they're talking about, Peter. What, the water wave? And so what the shake of the paper maker is, um, for those of you who want to know, when paper, almost all production paper mills have agitated vats where the pulp is moving. So when you dip your mold in, the pulp kind of throws itself onto the screen and you need to stop from going off. So you lift the backside of the of the frame up to stop the wave from going. At the same time, you tip the mold gently from left to right. And that makes a little wave move that way. And those cross waves are what give the paper less grain. If you don't do those cross waves, it has a very distinct grain running the direction you dip. But if you shake it side to side, it it eliminates some of that grain. So the the paper maker shape is too and also when it get they dip the pulp throws it on, they stop it, and then they can judge by the weight of how heavy the mold feels on their hands, whether they've got too much or too little pulp on. So they either let it all fly off or they flip it off in the back. So that's what the flip off in the back is, is getting the weight to feel right to their hands. So so it was about the water wave. Now, what, when I was dipping, I was dipping straight down and then lifting the mold up and then shimming it. And when I shimmy it, the pulp just levels out so nicely. It's so easy to make a beautiful looking sheet of paper. And when you're doing these motions, it takes years to be able to get that same evenness of surface when when you're making your sheets um, happen. But what, what the advantage of what they're doing is, is when you dip straight down, you're lifting all that water. So you're lifting a pints a pound the world around. You're lifting all this weight. When you dip your mold only down to your fingers, that was one thing Cyril said. I said, well, do you ever have to shave your arms because you get pulp on them? And he says, no, I never get wet below my knuckles. Mm-hmm. So he'd only put the mold in. It goes straight the down. Front, to the front, right. Front edge, the edge towards his belly. He'd dip that in down to his fingers. Then he would lift that side up, but it would kind of be thrown across. And he would never let the back side of the mold touch the water, actually. So he's only actually living half, half of the weight of water. He's only, and he's never having to have any suction to lift it through. So that's why he didn't get tired because he's doing very little work. And, and, and then, but the work is all in how do you get the sheet even when you're not doing very much work like that? Because it's hard. The shimmy makes it very easy to settle the fibers easy, evenly. And when you're doing these shakes, it's much more difficult. Right. And of course, it depends on how fast the fiber drains. Like I work with a lot of highly beaten fibers. So I have a lot of time, a lot of drainage time to get that shake in. But I remember meeting you at a point when you were talking, thinking about ergonomics and um, I was having a lot of back problems and this was instrumental. Yeah. And that's where this came guys. That's how they didn't get a sore back is because they did so little work and they, and and at the time, like you say, I realized, Oh, it's all about posture too. Um, Mm -hmm. And they, the vat is created so you can get your feet underneath it. And I had a, 
um, a yoga teacher come in and sort of look at me making paper. She says, well, you're standing on your heel. Uh, you're standing on your toes. You've got to have your feet planted evenly or else you're putting all the stress in your back. And if you lean over and reach out, you're doing the same thing. You've got to keep, they were able to just keep everything all centered in their bodies because the English vats have a slant, a slanted front. Right. So make room for your knees to get under there. Yeah. So, so yeah, the ergonomics thing is all about how do you, how do you, and and Cyril, the other thing kept saying was stay loose, stay loose. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. When you watch Japanese paper makers, you can really, they have a really fluid motion. I remember seeing some professional Japanese paper makers early in my career. And uh, it, yeah, it was such a fluid thing. This episode of Paper Talk is sponsored by the Redcliffe Paper Retreat, an annual retreat held at Helen Hebert's studio in the heart of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in late August. Enjoy a peaceful, creative week in the tiny hamlet of Redcliffe, surrounded by mountains, the river, and aspen trees. Experiment with several techniques as you create a variety of paper objects that will intrigue your eyes and illuminate your spirit. All levels of art experience are invited. The 2023 retreat theme is paper panels. Come explore a variety of papers that can be made by hand, cut, folded, stitched, and assembled in a variety of ways to create books, wall hangings, sculpture, lighting, and more. Explore these ideas as you create unique paper objects with a dozen like-minded creatives. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com backslash red-cliff-paper-retreat. I want you to tell me about that Tuck and Hay People and Paper book. Like, yeah. what is so that we, book? We went back and we started, we met some of the other people that worked in the mill and started to hear all of their stories. And I, I had recorded them. And if you read the book, you'll see that the mill went bankrupt. The owner was so mad that it went bankrupt that, um, and he was a lawyer. He, he sort of swore that he'd get back at them if they ever said anything bad about the mill. And he had everything burned when the mill closed, oh. but they stolen some things out of the mill. And, and they told me about those things after they, I gained their confidence. And so um, when they passed, when Frank and his wife passed away, they, they sold us, his daughter sold us the, some of the materials that they had stolen from the mill. And, well, I guess they really did steal it from the mill, but it was being burned. So I don't know if that's called salvaging rights or not. But anyway, so um, the, the point of that is that we had this great story, all these transcribed interviews, and they were completed in about mid-1990s. But Mr. Harrison didn't die, and they made us promise not to publish anything mm -hmm. that they told after Mr. Harrison had died. So we weren't able to complete the book until um, about uh, 2000. 16 i think is when i published okay. the book okay. and so if you look the book has a and it's on, available online and there's a, a, a kathy baker published the text of the book as tuck and a mill and so it's a it's an incredible story that really reveals a lot about how paper was made in those production mills and and if you're a paper maker and you read it you'll gain so many insights into what you might want to do differently and how you might want to do it but this is a major project of our life. We've had several major projects that I want to run through very quickly. Another was the history of paper making in the Philippines, where we we have we letterpress printed a fine press book that is the only history of paper making in the Philippines, and you'll see that in our list of books too. Yeah, we'll and, put I'll put links to all of these in the show notes. And we have focused. We've made a number. We've made a number of books about paper making, and 
and um, Helena want me to mention that in 1992 or so, we made a book called A Collection of Hand Paper from Paper Mills in the USA. So what I did was I found 30 so people that were making production paper like I was doing, asked them to send me 150 sheets. And then we put their statement about their paper making, printed it, we printed it on their paper and then bound it into a book. And then that was used by the Guild of Bookers as a set book for a binder show. So it's all spreading the word about hand paper making is established in America. We're, we're production paper makers. And then we followed that up about five years later with a book called Paper from Plants. And the idea was a lot of people said, well, hey, I, I make paper all the time. I'd like to be included, but I'm not a production paper maker. I'm not making paper mm -hmm. to print books on. And so we thought, okay, let's do this. But we realized I wouldn't be able to print on it. So then we included an eight and a half by 11 sheet of their paper with and printed on my own paper made from cotton and had a, a statement. This weren't, they weren't descriptions how to make paper, more about their relationship to making paper. So that's called Paper from Plants. And I think those two books stand as really great documents of American paper making through this, what I call the paper making revival. And I don't know where we are now, but we're not in a revival. We're now in our maturity. We're kind of grooving along. Yeah, it's been over 40 years. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your studio now. You never told me what your Hollander beater, what you ended up with after making that one in the family. My Hollander beater worked perfectly for about 30 years. And okay. it's a beater. I, I had to rebuild the box to make it be better. Okay. Three pounds of rag with about 12, 15 gallons of water. It's a brass roll, but it has very wide blades. And so it can't cut rag very well, but it works perfect with half stuff. Um, okay. And, and you use primarily the Cheney still. Is that what you use? Yeah. Yeah. My my standard formula is pretty much about 90%, 85, 90% Cheney, 10% Linter, a little teeny bit of Abaca for magic. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the lender sort of fills in the, the interstices, and that mm -hmm. seems to make a nice sheet. And the so you have just, I have never been to your studio. It's oh, yeah. attached to your house, right? It's Some... underneath the deck. It's built in an underneath the deck spot with a sloped floor. And it's about okay. 15 by 20, maybe about that size. And it's a dedicated space. That we, it's, it's there all the time. Although I may only make paper three times a year, but each time I make right. it, it lasts takes three or four weeks to make whatever I'm going to make. Right. Um, and then you have uh, printmaking and what about binding? You have spaces. Then we have a space that's about 10 feet wide by 30 feet long that has our print shop and bindery in it. Okay. That was an old car, the car closed in carport. Mm -hmm. And um, our, in the paper making shop, I have a bat that has a Hollander agitator in the bottom and I have the press that's three by three feet. And then my sink vacuum table. I just wrote an article about all of my equipment that was in the last issue of hand paper making. So people can see the different things I've been sort of tricks that I've developed. Yeah. Using Most of my tricks were something I saw somebody do somewhere. And I traveled a really lot studying paper making when I was doing that early research. And so I had a, a lot of information I could share with other people. And I always tried to share it. I wrote a lot of articles for, um, mm -hmm. Hand paper making magazine, IATMA, and Friends of Dart Hunter, just trying to share those things I'd figured out. One of the things that was the hardest to figure out, which we all know about now, was a dry box, how to how to mm -hmm. dry your paper. And right. there's a lot of grand solutions. You, and um, mine is I use a cor double wall corrugated cardboard, a piece of binder board, a blotter, the wet sheet, blotter, binder board, uh, corrugated cardboard. I've used your system too, which is corrugated cardboard, blotter, 
or no, a window screen, blotter, window screen. Right. And that works just as well, I think, except for it's hard to, harder to shuffle the window. The window screens are harder to deal with because they roll around. But Right. So your binders board is um, keeping everything flat. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Keeps, the, keeps the cardboards from collapsing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because so many dryer boxes have the problem with the corrugated cardboards dish in. You and know, you're using double wall, not tri-wall. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. But I have okay. tri-wall now. I don't know okay. if it makes I mean, somebody gave me some drywall and so I used it, but right. I, I, the double wall that I've been using to make my production paper that's made all the paper for our books I've had since 1987. Yeah. So it's worked really good. Yeah. It's worth the investment. People always say, oh my gosh, it's so expensive, but it lasts forever. Yeah. If you're, as long as you're careful. Because if, as long as you're not, not soaking but, it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have the good press. So you get the water out. Right. It's a whole, it's a whole series of yeah. things. No, I know a lot of people aren't um, aren't, aren't able to set up a production shop because they don't have the space. I've been very fortunate to have the space to do right. that. So I, right. I understand that that's a that's that's a it's a a real honor to be able to do that. But it's what's allowed us to do what we're doing to make these books, and 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 it's a, it's been a lifetime commitment to building the the equipment. It didn't just come. I had to build each piece before before I figured out how to how to replace with something new. I, I do have a David Raina's beater now, but it's an older one, one of his aluminum roll beaters. Uh -huh. I don't have one of his. And I use that um, because it's easy. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. Um, okay, felt, let's, felts, yeah. Just felts, yeah. I, I went to a paper mill um, mm -hmm. that had made book paper and just got, I used paper making felt. And that's what right. I use, kind of about quarter inch thick. That's yeah. what I have too. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a eighth and somewhere between eighth and a quarter so maybe mm -hmm. yeah and um those make it easy the, to move things around I, single pellons work well i use pellons when i'm doing highly if i'm doing something that's highly pigmented and bleeding because i don't right. want to the other right. felt or when we just spray pulp because we've been doing some really fun experiments from something we learned from andrew peterson using a a, a um auto body spray gun to spray pulp to, through stencils to make uh, sprayed illustrations. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So um, let's go, let's talk a little bit about your books. So you mentioned the books about paper making, what size are those editions and what kind of places collect those? So, because uh, I'm guessing some of those are out of, you can't get them anymore. They're only in special right. collections. Right. So um, in the beginning, inspired by Everson and those early, those fine press printers who had um, what you call standing order subscribers and people actually collected books back then, they would sell 200 uh, copies. And mm -hmm. they, that's they used to make 200. So I made 200. And that's way more than a real human can sell these days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now our editions are about 30. Okay. And so that's where we transfer. In 40 years, we've gone from 200 to 30. Um, and we, our miniature books, we sold to miniature book collectors. They were fairly, um, we sold things, you know, in the beginning, we knew how much we could afford for something. So we priced our things so we could afford them. And we sold a lot of stuff. We've always sold a lot of stuff. We've never been the kind of artists that would price their things so high that they don't, that we can't, we love making stuff. And so, right. and, and don't like having it around. So we've right. always priced our stuff 
at a place where we think it'll sell sometimes maybe too low but mm -hmm. we we don't have a lot of stock left um, right. and that was part of our um you asked about uh, the being wandering book artists and of course if you search on the internet for us as wandering book artists you'll see that we took it over 10 years we traveled the country talking about the book arts which is i'm not focusing on book arts because it's a paper making podcast but that's definitely our being missionaries for the book arts is part of uh part of our life path and traveling around the country in our, in, in our wagon talking about the book arts we um we're able to place a lot of the work that we hadn't sold because uh, i don't know how many of you out there make make books but i know if you make them and you're proud of what you've done you know you make good stuff but it's just hard to get people to see it yeah and, um and we we went to an awful lot of conferences an awful lot of trade shows showing our work and selling it we we were full-time committed to that kind of thing and it's not very easy to do we were fortunate to have very low overhead already owning our house so mm -hmm. we 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 were able to live that kind of lifestyle because of that 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 blessing um but it requires a lot of work to sell your work and and we had a really lot of really great books that we knew librarians had not seen and and the librarians are the ones that are mostly interested in the work we do find uh, rare book librarians and private collectors when we sold a lot of our miniature, all of our miniature books sold to private collectors. But in about 2009, we decided to start making large books and use our miniature books as studies for for the ideas of what we might want to do in a larger book. And then those we've sold um, mostly to libraries and, and collectors, but we don't have a big standing order. We don't have any standing order list. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So but, let's just touch on the wandering book artist caravan so you yeah. you outfitted this vehicle it's beautiful to look at and um yeah you had probably developed contacts through i don't know miniature book sales and doing trade fairs so you that you oh, went around to visit our trip was and gave presentations and placed right. books right yeah well it was a it was a threefold thing and just okay. for those who don't understand the whole concept we we would travel during the school year and then we would um fly home leaving the trailer and truck sometimes on the east coast and flying back out again because the country's so huge most yeah. institutions and book arts programs are in, are east of the rockies rather than west of the rockies and the, or even if you take the middle of the country you know whatever the red river i mean it's still everything's east of there so you got to go halfway across the country just to get to like the first stop so so we spent a lot of time um, traveling around and we we um, gave lectures. We made cold call sales trips to libraries. And and again, like uh, like you just said, we we, did, we met a lot of people through over the years by going to these different conferences. We thought it was really fun to work with. And so on our first trip, we stopped at camera was 20 different places or 15 different places. And we did a collaborative work with a collaborative mm -hmm collaborative broadside in their studio and then we made a book out of that and it was called the wandering book arts collaborative broadsides and so um there was uh, i think that was in 50 copies we made 50 of each stop and then we gave one to each person one of the whole collection to each person who was um on the stop that was a really fun thing to get to work in all those different studios yeah. create this series of uh, of broadsides all based on the idea either something to do with with travel with books and somehow tying our wagon as a, as a, as a metaphor into the, into the work itself. Cause we started to think of the, the, 
our wagon, which uh, it's like a, a medicine show wagon, something like you'd see in Wid the Wizard in Wizard of Oz flying in. And, and we th thought of it as a metaphor for the artist book because um, it's like you look at it and you think, this is something special. I know it, it looks like a book, but I can tell it's something special. And then you like open the door and you walk inside and you go, oh my God, look, there's so much to see. I don't even know what to look at. So you read the story first. You ask mm -hmm. them what's it all about. But if you take a second trip in, then you start looking at some of the details, like what's the typography like? What, is, what are the individual decisions the person made in this book? And then you take another look more closely and you go, what are the secret layers? What, what are they hidden inside of, of this artist book so um to to be revealed on my third looking so we're we realized over the course of this trip that our artist books were too simple in a way we were we were they were pretty much based on this fine press idea or else struct idea of structure but there needs to be even more layers of complexity to make it a successful artist book i was talking about what i call the mona lisa of the book i wanted to make the mona lisa of the book and that's not that the mona lisa is the greatest painting ever but people it's an archetypal mm -hmm. thing. I wanted to make right. the greatest. How can I, what's that going to be? It's not that I thought I could really make it, but I wanted to aim for that. Like, what is the greatest thing that one could possibly make? And the greatest thing one could possibly make in terms of an artist book would be something that had the best materials. And so therefore my paper, can I make it the best paper I can make it? Can I make it the most evocative of something? Because it's got a, the best paper and how does it relate to thematically to the work? And then it's got to have the best text. Maybe it won't always have the best text, but it doesn't want to have meaningless text. It, text has to have a lot of meaning. And it wants to have the best presentation, binding. It wants, how is this binding going to, that if you just see it in a glass case, you're going to look at, oh my God, I want to see what's inside of that. But I also just enjoy looking. I don't even need to look inside to be satisfied. Right. That's what's make this Mona Lisa, all these levels. And then when you get to see them all together, you go, oh, I see how they all work together. And then, and then there's got to be something even more hidden hidden in it and so we're, we always work on that so do you, do you have an example you can tell me a book that had a certain paper that was evocative to the text etc or you well, feel like that just runs through all of you no, no it's much more in our more recent books like free little bird okay um, the the book is with duplex paper so so that, that already sets up in your mind there's got to be two stories to it or uh -huh. it should two so stories double-sided Duplex yeah, so, means double yeah, sides. Yeah. Blue on one side, brownish on the other side. Mm -hmm. So we're pooching two sheets of paper, one on top of the other each time. And then um, the text on the front side is, is a linoleum cut, so a block book with Donna's linoleum cuts of a poem or a, a, a song called A Free Little Bird As I Can Be. I'm a free little bird as I can be. I'm a free little bird as ever said a word. I'm a free little bird as I can be. And um, this is a, we on a one side of our wagon, we printed a foot loose and a look, uh, fancy free. I take to the open road, the, the quote by um, Whitman. And on the other side, we put, we tried to figure out what would a female voice be that would match that. And, th and this song we felt was like, this mm -hmm. is, uh, would be the matching song. So it's on the other side of our wagon. And we paired it, although it's hidden in the book on the back, we print so that it's in, and this is in the nested accordion uh, structure that we invented. And those of you who are listening, who you might look to our, book uh, which is called more making books by hand by the rockport quarry publishers that that describes different bindings that we came up we invented with different styles of, of book ways of putting a book together and this is called the net we call it the nest accordion based on i'm sure a lot of other people's ideas but but it's our unique little way of doing it so it gives you a, a 
one accordion next to the other. The nested, the inner accordion has a story on it. And so, but when you flip this one back on the, on this accordion, we laser cut out bird shapes on the top so that mm. when you look at the book, there's little bird shapes to, to be the free little bird. And as you open and close, the wing is sort of flaps. So it's uh -huh. kind of flat. So this is another kind of, how can you make the book more rich? All these different layers. But the backside has little cutout birds. And in, when you look inside the little cutout birds, you see words. And if you read the words, it's Maya Angelou's, well, I know why the cage bird sang. Mm -hmm. so, but you have to look very carefully to find that. And in the colophon, we say, on the front side, in case nobody's looking, we say, <laughs> text is Appalachian folk song and Maya Angelou's, I know why the cage bird sings. So somebody, if they read the colophon, they're going to go, wait, I didn't see Maya Angelou anywhere. Where is it? So they have right. to look further. Because right. you got to give them clues. It's not, I think it's, right. I mean, one of the problems I had, I don't mean anything, but one of the problems I had with studying art in college, art, art, art interpretation was when the teacher would tell me all these things this painting meant when there was no way you could know if it meant that or not, you know? Right. Yeah. And so in artist books, we can mean things and we can let people know what they mean. So we don't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be so obscure that nobody can actually ever figure it out in 50 years. Like you have to advance something. You can make something very complex and have it still be possible to understand. Yeah. Now, do you do most of the writing or does Donna, do you split that up, collaborate? Well, the writing that we have to do is usually expository, uh, yes. introductory prefaces, as mm -hmm. our work. And I've, I've tended to be one that writes more, where Donna tends to be the one that, that draws more, but we both edit each other's work. So I'm always giving her advice on what to paint. She's always helping out correcting the wording. It's great, right, to, have, yeah. it's great to have a second opinion on things. Yeah, and listeners... Um really dive into their website. It is so rich with imagery of Donna's too. And I read somewhere how she, she noticed someone looking at her work and really focusing on the illustrations. So she talked about the importance of the illustration versus the text. I can't remember exactly, but. One thing that we know is being book artists is that um, in a, in an artist book, the illustrator has to understand how a book works. It can't mm -hmm. just illustration on the page with the text on the page. The illustration has to integrate itself into mm -hmm. the text it's working with. And and it's if if you hire an illustrator and you hire a writer to make a book, they're not that you've got to also instruct them that they've got to work. To, they've got to collaborate. It can't be just the, or else your book will not be the Mona Lisa. It'll just be uh, you know yeah. whatever. Whatever is the next Here level. is a flower and a picture of a flower. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the beauty. And that's the wonder. And I think that that's what's just being revealed to us in the book arts is, mm -hmm. is what the possibilities are. When I said about time to end, I, I think I have, I just, in the, in the 80s, when um, the personal computer was invented and everybody was talking about, is this a book? Is that not a book? I started to start to think, and are we worried about computers replacing the book? I was like, I said I, I wrote a big statement saying I'm excited about this because there's so much that could possibly happen. And the day that I find myself laying in bed reading my computer, I'm going to know it's all changed. Mm -hmm. And that that one day I was laying in my bed reading my computer. I thought that's all changed. The book, the computer, like freed everything up. Um, freed freed so many possibilities up for people to get words on the page how they want to get words on the page. 
because it allowed people to do desktop publishing where before you could only do things very mechanically with metal type. So we're in a whole new world and it's been changing, but it's been, we're in the process of seeing it change. And how's paper making evolved in this in, in terms of, well, paper's been an art form and where people are expressing themselves through the, just the pulp as, as visual imagery. My interest, what I'm talking about today is making paper as a substrate. But let me tell you, if you mm -hmm. compare our 200, 180 books to any other 180 books produced by somebody else, you're going to see a life in our books that those other ones don't have because the paper speaks so loudly. Everson, I read in one of his essays, he says, it all begins with the paper because right. that's the ground. That's what it's standing on. And when you print a book on photocopy paper, you have a photocopy book, which is nothing to be dismissed, but, but I don't know if the Mona Lisa would have been made on photocopy paper. I, just, I don't know if it would have worked. It would have been a different thing. And all, of, all for democratic models. Every there, like there's a lot of churches. There's a lot of book artists. There's millions of ways of making books. But I, I encourage you to take a look at these books. And my favorite thing to see is a, a, a book on handmade paper. Oh my God, they just <laughs> so stand out compared to anything else. When you go to a book fair, visit a table like Vamp and Tramp and say, oh, "What yeah. book made on handmade paper? Show me those." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very few. Yeah, you're right. And do you do you use polymer plates? If I have to, uh -huh. I love type instead we're right right making a broadside for um the tor house foundation which is the foundation based around robinson shepherd's monumental home that he built built himself by carving rock out of the out of the nearby beach and building a tower and and this poem that we're printing everson loved jeffers poem and he printed using he felt jeffers poems were always perfect in this type style called gaudy new style which only was cast in 18 point. And I have Everson's old Gaudi New Style type. So I printed the, the poem, Jeffers' poem in the 18 point Gaudi New Style, but I, I needed a colophon. So I used yeah. digital Gaudi New Style and a polymer plate. Right. I'm using, I'm printing one of Tom Killian's cuts with it. And so I'm printing, actually printing his cut from polymer plate because he does, because um, I didn't want to damage his initial block because um, the paper I'm printing with has some lumps in it. And I didn't want to hurt his block. Right. So. so there's a lot of lot of thought that goes into every step. As oh, my well. God. Yes. The yes. latest book we've made has required every single one of our skills that we could possibly use. And, and we'll have people look forward to seeing that one. It's called Goodbye Bonita Lagoon. That's the book we're working on right now. And we'll be done with it. required our gold stamper. It required so many wonderful skills that we've developed over the years. And so any of you who are just beginning out there, it's it's all about years. Just keep going at it, beating away at it and having and 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 doing a little again and again and again. And I wish you all the greatest of luck. And I hope that if you have any questions about production paper making that and and uh, you won't be shy to to shoot me an email, and let me know. Um, I don't yeah, know. you've but, been so but, generous. Yeah. I want to I want you to talk a little bit before we go about your. 40th anniversary exhibition and your autobiography paper samples 2022 so in a way after we we traveled as one the wandering book artist for 10 years and then we planned and we thought 10 years that's a good chunk of time let's just call it quits and that was 2019 which was fortunate because then the pandemic mm -hmm. made us couldn't have traveled it anyway but during that point um during the at the end of that trip we were celebrating 40 years and we had a series of shows in libraries across the country that that featured the work in their collection that they had that, that was was ours 
And while that happened, we thought, oh, that's kind of like, maybe that's kind of like, I don't know, a good time to sort of summarize what we've been doing in our life. And fortunately, we, we met at a, one conference, uh, Kathy Baker, mm-hmm. who, and we proposed the idea of publishing our bibliography of our work, which we'd already started by um, with Max Yella at the University of Wisconsin. Milwaukee. No, yeah, in Milwaukee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they had um, created a digital exhibit of our work because we realized there was no w- way where that anybody could see all of the books we'd made. There was no right. online resource. So now there's uh, using their, their digital exhibit of our work, you can see all 180 edition books pictured on their website. And, and there's a Kathy link from Bates. that through your website, I believe, maybe. Yeah. And I'll put yeah, the link in the show notes. Yeah, it's fantastic. Also, also, you kind of like put our names in a digital exhibit, it comes up. Mm-hmm. So Kathy then spent a good chunk of, of her life, with, so thank you very much, Kathy, um, finishing up the work that had been started by the university with Max Yell and its team of, of documenting our work. And she then because she's a fine press, uh, trained as a fine press printer and a conservator, she was like going to do it right. So we had to get every book and we, and we were missing a few in that exhibit, but she says every book. And then every one of Donna's one of a kind books. And we didn't keep very good records of Donna's one of a kind books. And so there's a few that are lost um, right. that weren't recorded, but we found the ones we could and tried to get pictures of every one we could. And then you'll find uh, this, it's all beyond paper making, but our series is a books about, um, made out of ukuleles and our books that were made out of accordions or, and then the collaborative works we've done with other artists they're all documented in that book so that was a real treat and then while gap so what we did was we went through our whole shop like cleaning out all the corners because what we did as our part of kathy baker making that bibliography is we made a companion book called evidence overruns and ephemera and we've been saving overruns that we'd made or and and like well, when you, sometimes we print a whole run of a, a page of a book wrong, so it'd have right. a typo in it. We would mm-hmm. get the imposition wrong, so we had whatever you know, a hundred sheets of a book. So mm-hmm. I just saved them, thinking I'll use them sometimes. So we we'd save those. So we gathered all this up, and we made we were able to make I think thirty copies of a of a of a book about with with actual physical samples of our work, and all of those sold immediately to different libraries. Mm-hmm. And there's probably one that within a couple hundred miles of you, unless you live in, no, no you can live anywhere. Antarctica. In be, yeah. In the U.S., in the continental U.S., <laughs> you can probably pretty much anywhere um, within, within a good driving distance. So, but then that led to what I think we should end the show with is, is yeah. um, autobiography. Re- I, re- I realized I also had a whole collection of paper samples that I made because I'd sort of been throwing crummy sheets I'd made. They were in a box mm-hmm. and, and then our, when we pulled all these samples out, we realized, oh yeah, this this book that we have extra ones of is representative of a certain phase of our paper making career. Mm-hmm. So we and we, and because we the bibliography made us think about the timeline of our life. And I don't know how many of you have ever tried to go through your life and figure out what you did in nineteen whatever, and then nineteen whatever, and then yeah. twenty whatever, and 20 whatever. It's really hard to recreate a whole timeline of your life. But but for this project, I decided it would be really fun to figure out what did I learn when? And mm-hmm. so started writing out year by year, what did I learn and who did I learn it from? And, and what paper, what book did we make? What paper do we make out of that? And we made a collection of six 
box samples of paper that spanned our life. And I had actually kept the first piece of paper I made, which was about, it turned out to be diamond shape, about 12 inches long and six inches wide. So I was able to cut that into six pieces and each, each collection got one little sample of that first piece of paper I ever made. And um, we continued working, collecting them all, all those samples together, and then thought, well, what's gonna make the project work well, really well? We had, in the Tuckanay People and Paper book, we realized that I did not want to letterpress print all the interviews. And so we printed them as a digital book. And that's what we sold with our thing. And then Kathy Baker took that digital book and re-added uh, more information to it, edited it, made it perfect, added more pictures, and then published it as her, uh, as a legacy press tuck in a mill book. So we knew this that this idea of making a digital book to a comp as documentation to a mm -hmm. handmade paper book would work well. We then did a book called Only Love um, with haiku poems by uh, a local jeweler named Albion Smith. And Albion had made, a, he loves writing haiku and he'd actually cut each letter out of copper and glued it mm -hmm. to an aluminum plate to print his book from. And mm -hmm. we took his plates and, and but then we figured this needed to be explained. So we did digital documentation. So in this paper samples book, we thought, yes, a digital documentation would make perfect sense. So we we printed out or we 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 formatted the whole book as a digital book that then slid in along with the paper samples in those six um, books. And then we realized, hey, some maybe more than six people might be interested in our story. Though so who knows? You weren't, you know, who's interested in what there's so much in the world and Donald Trump, yeah. Trump is so follow maybe nobody will ever be interesting but we have then we made available on our website these um digital books that's a hundred page book and it has pictures of of a lot of the paper making books we we printed and pictures of the molds that i made pictures of the equipment picture of the shop and in the back we sewed in five samples that we had uh of representative of our life from ones that were made at the renaissance fair to one of our latest sheets of paper. And at and the beginning, so, you have a wonderful sort of history of paper making in America. Right. I read that yeah, and I love that. Yeah, I wrote. Yeah. It's sort of, a, it's more, it's a, it was a history of the revival. What, a, the what revival. Was it's, yeah. kind of, it's kind of autobiographical in a way. Like mm -hmm. where do right. I, where do we fit into this, this little puzzle of, of us reviving paper that started with Dart Hunter and continues on today. Yeah. Well, I wrote that. I wrote I originally drafted that up to give us a lecture at, at one of the, the friends, the last friends at Art Hunter meeting before it became North American hand paper makers. So, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that so those kind of meetings can be, I mean, they're just so valuable for so many oh, reasons. Yeah. It really got about these different ideas. And I've talked a lot about my paper making mentors. And so if, if, if it's time to close, I'd like to just thank those mentors. I'd start with mm -hmm. um, probably Dart Hunter and Dart Hunter Jr. I mean, it's Dart Hunter's book that got me on the path. And I met Dart Hunter Jr., who was such a craftsman, and he he really inspired me to, to, especially he printed, and made paper both, and mm -hmm. just to to spend time, make trying to get everything perfect, which right. I don't do anymore. Maybe I do, but we always that's one I think with the hallmarks of our work is we aim for perfection, mm -hmm. and whether we do it or not, that's another thing. We're always failing, of course, but but we're trying to make things as good as possible. Right. So Dart then um. There was A.J. Laws, who's an unknown paper maker. And there's Jim Arnell, 
who came to all those early Dart Hunter meetings and inspired me to make my beater. And there's James Wagan, the Indiana kid, who was just this guy that lived in Napanee, Indiana, worked as a job printer, but decided he wanted to make paper, made the first beater. And his beater inspired so many people to make beaters because he he was the one that inspired Wagan. I mean, Yarnell, he just uh, like he just made this beater out of nothing from a guy that didn't know what to do. And he made paper and printed books. And then um, after that comes Rigby Graham, who worked with John Mason. And I spent a lot of time, fortunately, met him before he passed away and and discussing with him what it was like working with John Mason. And John Mason's book, Paper Making His Artistic Craft, was another of our paper making ancestors, the thing that led us on the path, him publishing that book made information available to so many people when no information was available. Right. Then we, of course, have to give credit to a few more living people. Howie and Kathy Clark for establishing Twin Rocker and training so many apprentices that went out and on. Walter Hamity for teaching so many students to make paper that went out and on. Claire Van Vliet, who, mm-hmm. who just made a paper with different papermakers, but she shared her information so freely, what she knew, and especially the t- her leading edge of bringing art into paper, you know, right. how to make artistic paper. She just, her early books, especially those landscape ones that she made with Twin twin Rocker, I think, like, is it called Lilac Wind? Or was that the truth? Just with, with these, with these accordion-folded pulp painted Right, images. I know what she you're talking really, about. I saw them at Twin Rocker, bar, yeah. She set the bar high mm-hmm. for, for what mm-hmm. we're doing. There's so many, Douglas Howell, I have to mention him too. I did actually meet him as well. And he was like a John the Baptist, like just, just wanted to convert me to doing test. He, he was like, be, be logical, keep a beater log, use, right. a, um, use a thermometer, use an amp meter, know exactly what you're doing, use a scale. <laughs> All these things I would just, I was like the, the, pioneer cooker throwing a little of this in and a little of that i was like nope okay no keep a record of what you did so you can do it again right those are my paper making mentors each of you will have your own i've got my own then i've got my peers Mm -hmm. which i think there's a list but especially i want to (laughs) mention sorry i'm crying (laughs) my buddy ray tomaso yeah who just passed away right ray was Ray was my first roommate, was my roommate, their first start in our conference. Always somebody I could call for information. I'll give Peter a little break here. And Ray, by the way, is from Colorado, where I live now. And his studio, his wife is uh, continuing his studio. And Rhiannon Alpers, who I'll have on the show one day, is cleaning it and having workshops there and using his equipment. And it's wonderful. It's great. It's become a community paper making. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Was, in Denver. We all have, we have those people we can call And There's probably, there was three people in the world I can call when I have a question. Well, there's five of them really. You, you, you can call Helen Hebert. You can call Andrea Peterson. You can call Ray Tommaso. And if none of them can do it, then you can call Howie or you can call Tim. <laughs> Howard Clark or Timothy Barrett. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you answer there, you're out of luck. <laughs> those those are those are my yeah they're 
Yeah, Peter. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm going to list, you have a couple of trade publications that I know people will love. You mentioned more making handmade books and there's a thousand artist books too. Those are wonderful books that are readily available. Um, But I hope people will look at uh, Peter and Donna's website and visit their books in special collections libraries and meet them at a conference maybe one day. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, I'm looking looking forward to going to Rhode Island if I can. Yeah, Maybe that'll we'll be the up. next North American Hand Paper Makers Conference in October. Yeah. All oh, right. Well, thanks for having me, Helen. Yeah. Treat. Donna said hello to all of our paper making friends that happen to listen this far. She said at the very end to say hi to y'all. Take care. Have fun making paper, everybody. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can find out more at helenhebertstudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit helenhebertstudio.com and click on podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. Besides the season.